Monday, July the 26th, and this is your morning briefing from The Economist. Coming up, wild night in Tunisia and Europeans take up pitchforks against vax rules. First, the world in brief. Kais Syed, Tunisia's president, suspended parliament and sacked the prime minister, Hicha Makichi, after anti-government protests swept the country. Demonstrators blamed the ruling Anada party for a faltering economy and rising COVID-19 caseload. Many Tunisians celebrated in the streets. Anada called Mr Syed's actions a coup. Tunisia was the only country to emerge from the 2011 Arab Spring a democracy. Hundreds of thousands of people across Europe protested against COVID-19 restrictions. In France and Italy, demonstrators aimed their ire mainly at government's plans to demand proof of vaccination for certain purposes. The French Parliament approved a bill that would require it for domestic travel. Angela Merkel's chief of staff said that Germany might bar the unvaccinated from cinemas and restaurants. America confirmed it is conducting more airstrikes during the final weeks of its presence in Afghanistan and will lend logistical support to the Afghan Air Force even after it leaves. However, General Kenneth McKenzie, head of the Army's Central Command, added that any such help, quote, will generally be from over the horizon. Also that, quote, Taliban victory is not inevitable. Philip Morris, the tobacco giant behind the Marlboro brand, will stop selling cigarettes in Britain within 10 years as it concentrates on less harmful things to inhale, such as vapes. Only a decade ago, Philip Morris continued to deny the harmful effects of its mainstay. Now its CEO says he wants the company, quote, to leave smoking behind. Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of America's House of Representatives, said she would appoint a Republican, Adam Kinzinger, to a committee investigating the storming of the Capitol by a pro-Trump mob on January 6th. Liz Cheney, another anti-Trumper, will be its only other Republican. Last week, their party's leader, Kenneth McCarthy, withdrew all his nominees to the committee. It is scheduled to begin hearings tomorrow. Israel's government pledged that the country will reduce its greenhouse gas emissions by 85% by 2050, from 2015 levels. It also promised to reduce emissions by 27% by 2030. The new targets focus particularly on reducing emissions from three sectors, transport by 96%, electricity by 85% and municipal waste 92%. Israel had already said it intends to quit fossil fuels by mid-century. At last, the host of the troubled 2020 Olympics had a day to celebrate, as Japanese athletes did unexpectedly well in a variety of disciplines. Japanese viewers, until now unenthused by the Games, may grow eager after seeing their athletes take a clutch of gold medals in skateboarding and judo on a single day. As expected, China and America are vying to top the overall medal table. And fact of the day. 0%. The amount of coral reefs expected to be left if the world warms by 3 degrees Celsius. And now, here's today's agenda. Between a rock and a hard place. Iraq, America and Iran. Today, Mustafa al-Khadami, the Iraqi Prime Minister, will meet Joe Biden, America's President at the White House. In June, Mr. Khadami appeared at a military parade with the head of the Hashd al-Shabi, a collection of militias that help Iran to protect its presence in the Middle East. Juggling the demands of the two rivals has been the uneasy task of all Iraq's leaders since America conquered the country in 2003. Mr. Cardamy is squirming more than most. Iran launched strikes on American bases and the American embassy in Baghdad this month. 
America is attacking Iranian-backed militias near Iraq's border with Syria. These undermine Mr. Cardamy's claims of sovereignty and of having his people's respect. It doesn't help either that he is failing to provide water and electricity in the searing summer heat, or that fires have destroyed hospitals that should be treating COVID-19 patients in the midst of another surge. An election looms in October. Mr. Cardamy is on the hook. Like it or lumper? Malaysia's parliament meets at last. Malaysia's parliament convenes for its first session of the year today. Muhyiddin Yassin, the Prime Minister, put off doing so for as long as possible, favouring months of dilly-dallying and the imposition of a state of emergency instead. His hand was at last forced by a rare intervention from Sultan Abdullah, the current monarch in Malaysia's system of rotating heads of state, who is theoretically above petty politics. Mr Muhyiddin's parliamentary majority, if it exists at all, is razor-thin. That will matter little this time. The lower house will meet for only five days and is unlikely to hold any votes. Nor is it likely to debate the emergency measures that the government has imposed in recent months. Opposition parties are desperate to bring down Mr Muhyiddin. But with COVID-19 cases climbing and ordinary Malaysians fed up with lockdowns and economic pain, there is little appetite for fresh elections. Mr Muhyiddin will live to fight and procrastinate another day. Abortion Bounty Texas's New Law Hundreds of state-level regulations have made it harder for many American women to have abortions. A new law passed in Texas this month could be the most harmful yet. It allows any person to sue another who has, quote, aided and abetted an abortion from early in pregnancy and, if they are successful, claim, quote, damages of $10,000. That flagrantly violates Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court ruling in 1973 that made abortion a legal right. But because Texas's law is designed to sidestep the usual process by which such laws are challenged, overturning it may take longer than normal. Still, abortion rights groups hope a court will block it before it is due to take effect in September. Campaigners on both sides of America's abortion war, meanwhile, reckon the Supreme Court, which has a conservative supermajority, may weaken or overturn Roe next year. If that happens, Texas is one of several states that could outlaw abortion altogether. Unhappy Meal Global Food Prices Global food prices have been piping hot since last autumn. An index of key agricultural commodities by Bloomberg is 57% higher than it was a year ago. The surge is partly due to demand. China has been splurging on imports since losing much of its pork to swine flu. The reopening of economies and restaurants means more consumption of animal products, which require more grain to produce. There are supply factors too, including droughts in North and South America, more expensive oil meaning that foodstuffs have been diverted to make biofuels, and snags in supply chains. Economists worry about the effect on inflation, others warn of increased hunger. Luckily, some pressures are likely to abate soon. Harvest forecasts in key producing countries look good, China's larders are filling up again. In the meantime, the giant commodities traders that source, store and ship foodstuffs around the world are having a field day. ADM and Bunge, two of the world's largest, report earnings this week. Analysts expect a feast of good news. Beside the seaside, art and climate change. It has been a roller coaster of a week in Britain. 
Storms and flooding have swept in behind temperatures hot enough to melt roads in places last week. Another heatwave is forecast in August. Climate change is, subsequently, at the forefront of many minds. Several artworks at the Folkestone Triennial, an outdoor public event that runs until November in the seaside town, reflect this preoccupation. Mike Stubbs's flame-covered van, quote, Climate Emergency Services, contains a laboratory that measures air pollution. Mr Stubbs asks the viewer to consider the trade-off associated with fossil fuel-powered vehicles. A virtual reality artwork by Shazad Dawood is more existential. The viewer becomes an octopus-like being in a flooded, futuristic world where hybrid creatures rule, an eerie reference to rising sea levels and biodiversity decline. As the world braces for more erratic weather, expect art to become increasingly concerned with the environment. Summer Quiz Week 2 Up for another battle with our baristas in a summer quiz? For Week 2, we'll again serve up a daily question. On Thursday, your challenge will be to give all four answers and tell us the connecting theme. Email your responses and include mention of your home city and country by 5pm BST on Thursday to editor-espresso at economist.com. We'll pick randomly from among those with the right answers and crown one winner per continent on Friday. Monday. Which Secretary General of the UN was described as, quote, the greatest statesman of our century by President John F. Kennedy? Finally, here's the quote of the day from Aldous Huxley, who was born on this day in 1894. To see ourselves as others see us is a most salutary gift. Hardly less important is the capacity to see others as they see themselves. That's it from The Economist Morning Briefing, available every weekday and on Saturdays. You can hear interviews and analysis from our journalists, including our current affairs podcast, The Intelligence, by searching for The Economist on your podcast app or asking your smart speaker to play the latest Economist radio podcast. And as a subscriber, you have access to each week's full edition in audio. Just download The Economist app on your mobile device to start listening. 